0: Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at loe.org or call me at 617 629 3638. And thanks.
1: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This winter week, we hear Asian American stories about juggling multiple identities. <coughs>
2: As you can see, I'm Asian and I'm not black. What I'm about to say might sound like slack, but just lend me your ears and hear me out. I come to tell you what I'm all about. Yes, my name is too, and I come to say I'm the refugee talented in many ways.
1: Tales of refugee camps, Japanese-American internment camps, and Grandpa's tin roof shack.
0: That summer, I found myself wearing men's galoshes, Grandpa's overalls, and this big coolie hat. I look totally F.O.B., man, fresh off the boat.
1: Those stories and more stories right here on Living on Earth this week.
3: Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The days have grown short and cold, the nights long and dark. In the Northern Hemisphere, we're not so far from that shortest day of the year. So it's time to put our daily duties aside to gather with family and friends. And here at Living on Earth, it's time for us to put our coverage of environmental news on the back burner to fire up some fresh storytelling. This year, for our winter storytelling special, we turn to the East. Three Asian-American artists bring us their true tales of tough times, triumph, and cultural tightrope walking. So first, we'd like to welcome tu Shung, sheng a Hmong-American storyteller, hip-hop artist, and comedian. He tells us the tale of his journey from the hot jungles of Laos to the cold winters of Minnesota. Welcome, Tujur.: Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. Also with us is stage artist and writer Brenda Wong Aoki. She brings us a story of how she bonded with her grandfather over pickled chicken's feet and blankets of seaweed. Hello, Brenda.
0: Hi, thanks for having me here.
1: And storyteller Megumi tells us about one man's life growing up in a Japanese-American internment camp in World War II and how his cartoons gave voice to an imprisoned community. Megumi, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me
1: here. So, Brenda, let's start with you, uh, What kind of memories does this time of year bring up for you?
0: Well, it reminds me of when I was a girl. I have four sisters and a brother and my mom and my dad. And it reminds me of wearing matching dresses. My mom used to make all of her own clothes and she'd make them out of the same bolt. And she really liked polka dots. So she'd make five little polka dotted dresses for me and my sisters. (laughs) And my brother and my, my dad would have shirts to match. And every time we'd go out like, you know, to a busy place like downtown or something, we'd be wearing these matching polka dot clothes. So, in case any of us got lost, somebody would find us and bring them back, right?
1: <laughs> that was our holiday attire. <laughs> a holiday attire. So, of course, this time of year, um, what kind of food would your family make?
0: Tomato beef chow mein with crispy noodles. And it was our favorite thing at, at Christmas time. And we always make jok after a big holiday. If your mom's Chinese, that's what you have.
1: Jok? What's jok?
0: Jok is this um, rice gruel a soup. It's like um, a gumbo. A gumbo. You keep, yeah, because you just, it's just plain, and then you just keep adding stuff to it. You just throw stuff in.
1: Mm, sounds good. I'm getting hungry already.
0: It's good.
1: Now, your mom was raised in an orphanage uh, in the San Francisco area, as I understand it. But... Your mom has always had a relationship with her father, despite not growing up with him. Could you tell us a story about your relationship with your grandfather?
0: Well, my grandpa lived in an old tin-roof shack. No electricity, no running water. He never really learned English. And his strange, gruff ways used to scare me. I can remember my first trip to grandpa's. I was about six Along the way, we saw this sign, and I had just learned how to read. It said, How Long? Hmm, that confused me. But then my mother explained that How Long was Grandpa's best friend. They had come together from Canton, China, when they were 18 years old. And then I saw a dwarf, right out of Snow White. It was Grumpy. Nope, it was Grandpa. Inside his shack, there were these frogs, big as your head, riveting in the sink.
3: Ribbit, ribbit, ribbit.
0: I handed my grandpa a bunch of flowers my mother had given me. <laughs> Mama, he won't take it. <laughs> you see, it turns out that to some old fashioned Chinese cut flowers, they're an omen of death. Grandpa thought I wanted to kill him or something. Mono juk-tao stupid bamboo head. <laughs> that night, we all lay down on blankets of seaweed. Seaweed, because that's what my grandpa did. He gathered seaweed off the rocks, and he sold them to people in Chinatown, marked fresh from Hong Kong. So we slept on that seaweed as it was drying, It was so dark in there, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And I remember, Mama, I gotta go to the bathroom. Mom handed me this metal pail. What's this for? You know. You mean, uh uh-huh, we call it a thunder bucket. (laughs) Uh-huh. And that's what I remember from my first trip to Grandpa's. We returned to Grandpa's when I was about 11. That summer, I found myself wearing men's galoshes, Grandpa's overalls, and this big coolie hat. I looked totally FOB man- fresh off the boat. This was not my idea of a nice summer. I was going to be home in L.A. in a bikini, body surfing with my friends, listening to my transistor radio, and here I was looking like a F.O.B. in this big old silly hat, helping Grandpa. At three or four in the morning, whatever time the tide was low, his little green flashlight leading the way, we'd climb down the cliffs. On these little teeny steps, my Grandpa had hewn from the rock. I was slipping and sliding, trying to my best to keep up with Grandpa's short, stocky legs. When we got down there, all around us were tide pools. Tide pools like you can't see anymore. Tide pools with pink and green sea anemones, orange starfish, little baby octopus, shells, gold and light. They're just beautiful, but Grandpa would say, "Fide, thee, fi hurry up! Twist and pull and throw in the basket. We gathered seaweed. Twist and pull and throw in the basket. The barnacles were really bad on your nails. Twist and pull and throw in the basket. Twist and pull and throw in the basket. I do not want to be here. Twist and pull and throw in the basket. Twist and pull and... Watch wave. What do you mean, Grandpa? Watch waves. Whoa. This was dangerous work. One false step and Mother Ocean ate you up. At sunset, Grandpa would gather those wet baskets of seaweed, put them on this long bamboo pole. You know, he had this groove in his shoulder that that pole fit perfectly in, sort of like a puzzle piece. We get back to his shack. He'd light a fire in the stove, shoo the frogs out the sink. Go now. Go. go take a great big walk, and make dinner. Sometimes on special occasions, Grandpa would bring out a Chinese delicacy. Pickled chicken feet. Little toenails clicking. He'd walk them across the table towards me. (laughs) He loved to do that. (laughs) After supper, Grandpa would take a hundred eighty-proof Chinese whiskey, pour it in a teacup, and in another he'd pour me tea. He'd say, "This for me, this for company." He'd light a big stogie, look me in the eye, and say, A Ablanda. Brenda House School. Brenda House School. That was Grandpa's favorite American line, Brenda House School. Because you see, in Chinese, words take on different meanings if you change the intonation. So Grandpa would change his tones and think he was saying a whole bunch of American words. Our conversation used to go something like this Now, Brenda House School. Grandpa, Tide pools are cool. I'll bend the to house Tomorrow can we take a day off? Blender the We used to talk like that for hours. At the end of the summer, Grandpa poured gasoline on the rocks and torched them. He said you had to do that to, so that the new seaweed could grow. All night we watched the flames on the waves... The next day, when my parents picked me up, I gave Grandpa a big kiss on his bald head right between those two floppy ears, and he said to me, You go now. Go. Go. And he stood there with that little green flashlight, and I swear that beam never wavered until we'd gone all the way up the mountain and dropped over the crest. My grandpa died when I was in college, and we buried him up near San Francisco in the Chinese cemetery behind Home Depot. Everybody put cut flowers on his grave, but I remembered and brought a small green plant that still had its roots.
1: Now, your mom has roots in China, and your dad has roots in Japan?
0: Yeah, we're pake, buddha, chikana, and haoli. Uh Chinese, Japanese, Spanish, actually, and Scots-Irish.
1: Okay, so what was it like growing up with such a unique background?
0: It was great. I just thought the whole world was like that. <laughs> I grew up on a naval base. I thought we were all like this.
1: Naval base where? Long Beach. And then I understand what you moved to the Bay Area, and there uh-huh. you and there you learned a lot more about your family. I imagine
0: it was a big surprise to me, but my grand uncle was probably the first uh, Japanese to marry a Caucasian person. He ran away with the daughter of the archdeacon of Grace Cathedral in 1909.
1: Right next to Chinatown there in San Francisco.
0: Yeah. And that was our literal fall from grace because um, (laughs) after that, our, our family was looked down upon because those times misogyny laws and things.
1: What happened to this white woman?
0: Well, God, she was amazing. She fled with her children into the Sierra foothills during the internment. Her daughter said... Mama knew those camps, you know, talking about the internment camps, Mama knew those camps weren't going to be no picnic. So they went up into the Sierra foothills and passed the kids off as Indians.
1: We're dishing up Asian-American stories for our holiday season program today, and there's plenty more to come from Brenda Wong, Aoki, and our other storytellers. So stick around and keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. This week, we're breaking from the news grind to bring you our winter storytelling special, this time featuring three Asian-American artists. And we've just heard Brenda Wong Aoki tell her tale about her special relationship with her grandfather. And in just a moment, we'll hear from storytellers Tuzier Zhang and Megumi. But uh, first, Brenda, I just got to ask you, uh, why do you think you were so reluctant to hang out with your grandfather? I suppose I would have been a little shy, too, if someone had been walking chicken feet toward me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was just, uh, I was a city girl. I wasn't used to... um Oh, his outhouse! Now that I'm older, it was just magnificent. <laughs> it stuck out over the cliff, oh, yeah. and um, you you had to go over this like little rickety suspension bridge he'd built, <laughs> and then you know you'd get out on his little outhouse, and there was no door; it just faced the ocean. It was the most incredible view. But you know, back then, when I was a young teenage girl, that was just too funky for me.
2: <laughs> where I grew up in the refugee camps and also in Laos, uh, my mother used to say, boys, if you have to pee, you all sign and pee by the tree. Girls, they go into the woods. So ever since as young as I can remember, I remember pee by the tree, the tree is where you pee. We come to this country <laughs> and the first day in America, me and my brother had to pee. What do we do? We went out to the closest tree by our neighbor's yard. My sister, uh, who had lived here a few years before us, who did sponsors to come here, my older sister, she looked out the window and she saw what we were about to do. She said, no, you cannot pee outside. This is America. She took us inside the house and she says to us, which means come with me. I'll take you to this special peeing place. And we follow her upstairs to the bathroom. This is where you pee. We looked in. Where's the tree? So... <laughs> she said, no, no, it's America. You pee in here. She pointed to, of course, you call it the toilet. Well, in Laos, in the refugee camps also, I remember as a kid, we didn't have shoes. we play outside barefoot all the time. Mom and dad always said, wash your dirty feet before you go to bed. So the first time I saw the toilet, I said, hey. I looked at my brother. American people have a special machine made just for washing feet. You don't even use your hands. You just rub, stick your feet in the toilet and stir it around like this. And so my sister said, no, no, that's where you pee. So we sure enough, we peed. Uh, we ran downstairs, and she yells at us right before we leave. We said, no, you cannot just pee, but you have to flush the toilet. In the Hmong language, it translated to mean something like, you boys must drain all of the pee away somehow. We had no concept of plumbing. So I'm thinking, what? You want us to grab something, literally, and scoop up the pee out of the toilet and take it outside? No, we should just pee by the tree. What's the point? <laughs> we had no constant plumbing. She said, no, it's very easy. Come here, come here. So she grabs us t- closer, and she says, no, this, this is how you flush the toilet. And then uh, she was actually had a sense of humor. She said, come a little closer so you see better. She grabs a few sheets of toilet paper and throws it in the toilet and says, now come to three and watch what happens. One, two, three, eat all pay. She pushes a switch, and we hear this noise. And it starts to get louder. Shh, she yells, step back, or the toilet will suck you in. <laughs> so I remember we ran we real fast, and, and when the, all the noise uh, uh, calmed down, we looked in the toilet, and she was right. Everything had disappeared into a little hole. And she said, you be careful. <laughs> you be careful. Next time you pee, you stand too close, you flush toilet. Shh, you go, bye-bye. For, for about two weeks, the joke was on us. <laughs> That's a great
1: story. (laughs) Megumi, (gasps)
4: Yes,
1: (laughs) I I, I wonder how how this story strikes you.
4: So when I was growing up in Japan, we didn't speak English. And when these two white old people came, my father told us that this was my grandfather and grandmother. But when they came, because we had the squat toilet, (laughs) um, my father had to buy a special little stand so they can sit on this ring. It wasn't just a squat toilet, it didn't flush, so it was the drop toilet. <laughs> and the drop toilet was um, really scary for me because even though I was old enough to know better, when you looked in, you can really imagine all those mummies down there ready to come out. Uh, Even though I knew logically they weren't mummies, they were toilet paper, I kept thinking they were mummies. And um, (laughs) when I was, I think, about nine, I thought, okay, I'm nine, I'm not scared, these are toilet paper, nothing. One night, I think it was about this time of the year, I squatted, telling myself I was okay, my mom didn't have to stand right next to me. And (laughs) something touched me and I thought, "Ah!" I screamed and I asked my mom to come. And when she came, she said, There's no mummies. I said, It won't touch (laughs) 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 me. There there are mummies down there and they can reach up, you know. (laughs) And um, and she said, No, 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 there can't be. And we found a little, um, praying mantis. <laughs> it had just come in through the window and, and, and had just flown up and touched my behind. So, <laughs> oh, and my grandpa, uh, my Caucasian grandpa, he was um, a career military man. So um, there was only a few times before he died when I knew enough English to actually make conversation. And uh, one time, uh, he sat there and started talking about war stories. I knew that um, both my Japanese grandfather and Caucasian grandfather had served in World War II. My Japanese grandfather Mm. never came back, Mm. never came back. He was missing in action for years and years. So Mm. I always had this imagination that um, my Caucasian grandfather had killed my mm. Japanese grandfather. So I had to get over that to just sort of sit down comfortably while he chatted away about mm. going to Asia. You know, somewhere in Asia, he said, oh, we were so hungry. We, we caught some chickens in the field, and we plucked the feathers, and we cooked them. And I thought, but couldn't actually say to him, didn't the chickens belong to some starving farmer? You know, so I, I have those kinds of
1: um, memories. Megumi, you've spoken with a lot of older West Coast uh, Japanese Americans who who lived through that time of losing their homes and being forced to move inland in defense camps, the internment camps, where more than, what, 100,000 Japanese nationals as well as Japanese American citizens were forced to live after the attack on Pearl Harbor in World War II. And I suppose I should disclose a little something from my family here. My mother worked with a Japanese woman teaching nursery school in 1941. And when word in 1942 began to come of the internment camps out west, this woman moved into our family home for a while, and then she disappeared. A couple of months down the line, I'm told, they gave her a some papers with Chinese names, and she moved to live with friends in New York City for the duration of the war. They they hit her out. Um, I guess she had a brother who did wind up in one of the camps. She'd gotten word of this, and she was very mm-hmm. worried. And this is what the women at this early childhood education center, otherwise known as a nursery school, decided to do. As a kid growing up, I always knew about this Japanese woman. We, there was correspondence exchange, but I never knew the story until actually fairly recently of, of why we had this relationship with her. Um, so, So tell me a story that you have about a... A teenager named Jack, I think.
4: Ah, yeah. Okay, Jack's sketches. During World War II, the U.S. government uprooted from their homes 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent without trial and imprisoned them. Most were American citizens. The rest were legal American residents. Well, this is back when most Americans believed that their president, the FBI, the U.S. Army knew what they were doing. So they did not protest this mass arrest and imprisonment. And in the Japanese community, there was this concept of gaman. And gaman means to be strong, to be patient, and no whining no whining, so it was almost a taboo to question authority. In fact, there were probably just four Japanese-Americans who formally protested. Four out of 120,000. There was one boy, a 16-year-old boy named Jack, who decided to stand up to this injustice. And what could he do? Well, he took scraps of paper and a pencil and cartooned. And he was able to tell the story of what happened without disgusting us. <laughs> Jack drew a, a sketch of um moving into their barrack apartment. Near Parker, Arizona, there were three camps, post one, two and three, and he was in post in two, twenty by twenty four or so. And of course the father is still absent, he's in some penitentiary somewhere, and he draws himself, his little sister and his mother. And of course, he's the the man of the house, so he has the broom, and he's sweeping up this humongous scorpion, bigger than him, (laughs) into this dustpan. And the caption reads, Before we could move in, we had to evict the former tenants, the scorpions. (laughs) School was very, very important. Education was very, very important. So the parents demanded to arrange for schools, even if they didn't have qualified teachers, even if they didn't have equipment. So some of the early photos show teachers sitting on rocks, kids sitting in the shade, in the dust with paper and pencil and trying to do work. Those are the kind of things that he drew. One of my favorites, too, is the graduation picture. He's in a a cap and gown. By the time he graduated, they had those. And um, he's looking at a teacher, sort of apologetically Uh, accepting the diploma, and the caption reads, I didn't think you'd make it either. He didn't think the teacher would make it, and the teacher didn't think Jack would make it, but he did graduate. And I have a feeling he did all he could to insert humor in the hardships of camp, but there came a point where he couldn't do that anymore, and he was distracted. And... He was able to attend art school for part of a semester because they had a special program that the Christians and the government had put together for promising young students to attend colleges in the Midwest. And he was there for almost part of a semester working as a janitor and taking classes, but he was called away to the draft. Then he um, became an intelligence officer for post-war Japan interrogating prisoners of war and translating sensitive documents and investigating uh, important uh, events you know all he did as a little teenager was just draw what he saw and he didn't really have lofty plans just to just to sketch what he saw just just to express his feelings but Later on, when uh, there was no more fear of government censorship, his mother talked him into publishing them. And he was able to publish his first edition of these cartoons, which he redrew as a um, professional cartoonist in 1974. And I personally believe that um, he did a lot to help those who were there who wanted to say that the camps never happened. He was able to help those who were there to laugh and cry and talk about it. And for the rest of us who weren't there, he I know he inspires me to stand up to injustice in whatever form I can. So that's what Jack's sketches have done for me and that's the story as I'm telling it to you.
1: What a story to tell of those times, and um, Brenda, uh, Toujou, does that concept of gammon, of, of grinning and bearing
4: it sound at all familiar?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, that's
4: just you know your mantra. Come on, oldest sister must be the good role model
2: for Suck everybody. it up. <laughs> <laughs> Toujou, well, I have a big family—six brothers and four sisters. So, yeah, 11, yeah. The lady said, ooh, you poor mother. My friends in college said, hey, your daddy had it going on. So I had to tell them, well, in a agrarian society, you need big families to survive. Uh, and Plus, we lived in the jungles in Laos. Most kids didn't see the, their fifth birthday due to malnutrition diseases. So if you have a few kids, chances are there some of them won't survive. Mm. So that's why Hmong people have big families. That's why I have lots of brothers and sisters. And besides, Aww. my father did have it going on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe your mother did.
2: <laughs> yeah, you made mother did, right. <laughs> Ooh, <yeah. laughs> nice.
1: It, you know, the part of that story that really grabbed me is first they lock up this guy. And then when they let him out to do work on his art, he gets drafted into the army. Now, if he was so dangerous, why did they lock him up and then... Why Mm -hmm. do they have him go to work in this army? I mean, the absurdity of it seems...
4: Yes. Laughable. And if you look at some of these maps of where people were detained, you look at the United States and it's just dotted all over because they would convert an unused post office and make it into a jail, for example. People were in Ellis Island, locked up there, and it's just atrocious how many places people were detained. The Peruvians... Yeah, I mean, when they kidnapped the Peruvian Japanese, they they were Peruvian citizens and locked them up, and then later on they weren't entitled to the reparations because they were illegal immigrants.
0: <laughs> Are you following this? So they they took <laughs> Peruvian Japanese from Peru, brought them to America, put them inside Japanese internment camps. My husband's mom said, "Oh, Mrs." Ichiguchi. She never could speak Japanese or English. She only spoke hey, Spanish. Spanish. And then the Peruvian government wouldn't allow them to go back and they couldn't get American citizenship. They sent them to some of them to Japan, right? And they couldn't...
4: For prisoner of war exchange. Right,
0: these poor people. They couldn't speak Japanese. Yeah.
4: You know, I, I tell you,
1: Franz Kafka wrote some novels, but he didn't have themes like this in them. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. Toujours. I'm guessing that Most Americans don't know a whole lot about the Hmong people. Uh, And growing up in the Midwest, I I bet you've gotten pretty used to
2: educating others about your roots. What do you tell them? Yeah, I get that a lot. I came here when I was six, so a lot of kids would come up to me, Hey, two, uh, uh, are you Japanese? Nope. What are you? Are you Chinese? Nope. What are you? I'm Hmong, I tell them. They say, well, Chinese are people from China, Japanese people from Japan, Hmong people. Hmong land? Where is that? So I went home, and I remember asking my mom. My mom spoke very limited English. She knows stuff like, hello, how you do? I do fine, thank you. What do you do? I do my work, thank you. Where you come from? I come from Laos, thank you. So she knew the basics. So I came home, I remember asking, mom, 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 what is Hmong? She thought about it. She recognized it was a question. She said, what is Hmong? I is Hmong. I said, no, mom, you can't say that. You got to say Hmong is something. She thought about it. She said, okay, Hmong is I. I is Hmong and Hmong is I. And I thought, wow, that was weird. And it wasn't until later on when I went to college, I got older, I realized why my mother couldn't really articulate what Hmong was because we, we don't have a written history. We're not documented. We don't have a sense of nationhood. So we originated from the country of China several thousand years ago. But as a people, as an ethnic hill tribe, we eventually went south. To avoid persecution and genocide to the countries of Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, Burma, and Southeast Asia, known as French Indochina, and settle there. So even when we were in Southeast Asia, we couldn't really blend in with the natives there too the Lao, the Burmese, or the Vietnamese. And so I often tell people, Steve, that we are the hillbillies of Asia. And no, no, we don't say yee but we most people do say nicho thong, same thing. <laughs>
1: More from Tu-Jer Zhang when our storytelling special continues in just a moment. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
3: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth... On PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We're swapping stories today for our special holiday show. And we're back with Asian-American storytellers Brenda Wong Aoki and Megumi, as well as
2: Tujur Zhang. Uh, Tujur, can you tell us about why you tell stories? I think stories are empowering. I grew up listening to stories. As a Hmong American growing up here, I would listen to the storytellers that my librarian at school would tell. You know, they'd take their little book and they'd open up and they'll start. Once upon a time, there was a bear named Tom. And that was storytelling at school. But when I came home, my dad told stories. But he told it Hmong style. And if you know Hmong language, it's a tonal language similar to the Chinese language in that it flows like music. And that uh, we didn't have a written language until 50 or 60 years ago. But my father told Monk's story in his own way. And he begins. <laughs> Long time ago, there was no sun, there was no moon, there were no trees on Earth, no people, no animals. It was dark and quiet place. And from this little crack in the mountain, this man came out, and that was a typical monk story, folktale about the beginning of the world. And his stories, it just took me to another world. And so, as a kid, I've always been fascinated by stories. So now
1: I understand why hip hop is part of your repertoire because that's telling a story with a bit of music. You know, kind of the American way. Uh, can you give us a little sample of what you do?
2: Sure. One of the first rap songs that I wrote is called the Go Mung Boy song. Here we go. <laughs> As you can see, I'm Asian and I'm not black. What I'm about to say might sound like slack, but just let me your ears and hear me out. I come to tell you what I'm all about. Yes, my name is too, and I come to say I'm the refugee talented in many ways. Well, you might think it's weird to see that I'm Asian. I'm busting some rhymes on such an occasion. Well, let me tell you how I came to be. I was born in Laos, in 1973. And in my culture, we sing and we dance, but I'ma start rapping and take my chance. And even though this is my first rap, you don't have to like it you don't have to clap to those you listen it might be nice to see this mung boy kick it like vanilla ice hey <laughs> yo yo I fled my country at the age of four, all because of the Vietnam War. My family was running from place to place, running from the guns at a very fast pace. My people was dying, here and there, dead women and children everywhere. When I think about these tragedies, thank goodness for my life and my families. And now that I live in the U.S. of A., I'm proud to be, and I'm glad to say, but... Sometimes I face resentment from others And feel only the mark on my sisters and my brothers Wherever I go, people give me the eyes They call me the oriental guy With my round face and my dark hair It still doesn't give them the right to stare Deep down inside, hey, I'm just like you With emotional feelings and affection too Everybody knows what's right or wrong can we all just learn to get along? Yo, I want to say thanks to those who accept me for who I am and not for who I should be. I want to say thanks for those beautiful smiles. Make it with your time. I'll make it with your while. Until then, peace and universal love. Soaring through the sky like a beautiful dove. Yo, yo, peace.
1: <laughs> nice. All, all right, nice. Good now, enough? um, too, can you tell us yes. about the Hmong New Year? As I understand it, the
2: Hmong New Year celebrations last, what? Two weeks? weeks—that Now that's a party. Two weeks. Yes, we do know how to party because in Laos, you farm most of the year. We have a saying, Most of your life, if you're in the jungle or in the mountains, your face is towards the ground and your back towards the sky. So uh, for two weeks, we party and all these different villages coordinate some kind of a New Year celebration where young men can go from different villages to meet the young girls who host them. Perfect time for courting. And we uh, toss ball, we call a ball, which we toss a ball back and forth between the young men and women to the Westerners they're saying, what's the big deal to play and catch? But to the Hmong young males and females, they are flirting and romancing. And uh, so it's very common to meet each other during the new year and marry a month or two afterwards. So for those Hmong who live now in the United States, I think there's a certain
1: kind of story that's told in the family. And uh, I'm wondering if you could tell us that story.
2: Yeah, most Hmong families in the United States will have a story of crossing the Mekong River. Uh, The Mekong River separates Laos from Thailand, and it's a very symbolic place in the history of our people, of Hmong Americans, because it's our story of the Trail of Tears, and it's our story of... The Underground Railroad or the internment camps, um, where many people know people who've died along the way, who uh, saw lots of dead bodies along the way, and so uh, my family story is sim- similar to that of many Hmong family stories. We made our escape crossing the river in September of 1975 uh, after the communist takeover of, of Southeast Asia of Laos, and the reason why we had to leave in particular is a my father, at the age of 14, 15, was, left his village to go fight with the CIA in the secret wars in Laos. Just a little quick historical background. The American CIA came into Laos in the 60s and said, well, if you Hmong people help us fight, we'll take care of you. We provide the the weapons, you provide the soldiers. The Hmong soldiers said, well, what happens if we lose? We'll take care of you, uh, uh, a promise was made to the Hmong soldiers. And after 15 years of war, to make a long story short, Americans returned home to America uh, Hmong people said, wait a minute, where do we go? And literally in 1975, after the Americans left, there was a secret document circulating in the new communist government saying, annihilate and kill the Hmong in revenge for helping the Americans. So thus began the exodus of Hmong people leaving outside of Laos, especially if you were, if you were allied and had military documents saying that you fought alongside Americans. So that's why we had to leave. Now, my father had this plan to to get us closer to the border, uh, the Mekong River. And we had heard about families who made it across the river. We heard about those who died trying because we knew soldiers were up and down the banks of the river waiting to shoot people who tried to leave. But we also knew that our chance to, to survive, we had to risk it because there were some refugee camps along the Thai border Uh, which were set up specifically to help monk refugees who didn't make it across so we planned our escape uh in september and 1975 and i was just a baby then uh, but my mother and father tell these stories all the time and lots of monk families would tell it to remind the kids hey look what we sacrificed for you to, to come to america The night we made our escape, my father had secretly arranged for some Laotian fishermen who had a boat and access to the river, who knew certain parts of the river were not patrolled as heavily as others. They came to meet us by the banks of the river uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning, and my father had paid them some money like he promised. We also had a neighboring family that was traveling with us, so there were about 40 of us in the group. These Laotian fishermen and their boat, they had to make two trips. So when we met up with these fishermen, they had doubled the price per person our neighbors were not able to get on this boat. They said, well, we don't have our money together. Uh, why don't you guys go first, and we're going to try to work something out so that we can um, take the second trip. So my family g- got on board. They took us across, and in my mother's words, she said it was, uh, it was a raining season. There was some lightning, thunderstorm. The boat was literally just inches away from overfilling with water. And she said literally, she just the whole time, she just prayed to our ancestors for them to watch over us and to guide us and to protect us. It was about a 45-minute ride in total darkness. When we made it to safety, these fishermen turned to my family and said, well, you stay here, we'll go back and get your neighbors. They came back to the Laotian side. They uh, picked up the rest of the party and they took them across. Somewhere along the line, halfway to the other side, my mother said she can hear they were approaching closer to safety. But out of nowhere, she said she heard splashes into the water. She knew there was some kind of a confrontation and struggle on board. She heard babies choking and it all became silent. And we didn't find out until what happened the next day that halfway across the river, these same fishermen who had helped our family pointed their guns at our neighbors. They robbed them of everything they had. They threw everyone overboard, including the children uh, and, and everyone. Of the 23 people on that second trip, 18 did not make it. Only five were able to survive. One of our neighbors, uh gentleman there, he was the only person who can swim. So he swam and uh, he was able to save two of his little children because he would swim up and there are all these babies choking and, and, and crying and crying. Underwater, and as their heads would be floating along, he would grab them by their hair pull them up. If it wasn't his kid, he'd drop the kid back in the water. Um, he did that, and he was able to save one of his little boys and one of his little girls. So, growing up, I, I these are stories I heard not only from my parents but from aunts and uncles. And when they tell these stories, it's very therapeutic, and then it helps them to to connect and to to kind of let go and put a sense of closure. And also helps them to I guess celebrate what we do have—the second chance that we do have here in America. In the year 2000, my business was, was um, doing good, and I was had a pretty busy schedule. But one year I said, you know, it's my mom and dad's 40th anniversary. We're going to take them to Hawaii on all-expense pay trip. And so my brothers and sisters pitched in, and I took them to the island of Kauai, and here we are. Um, just We spent a whole week there and we got a chance to see the dolphins and the whales and we went on some uh, excursions and we also took a helicopter ride over this entire island and just the lush green mountains, uh, the waterfalls, all of that reminded them of, of the native country Laos. And on the last day, our last full day that we were there, um, we decided to go up on this mountain, go up on the highest peak overlooking this the canyon and, and the entire island. Along the way, we had picked up some fruits, some mangoes, and so we get up to this top of the mountain. My aunt and uncle were there, too, and my uh, my mother takes a leaf from a tree, and she starts leaf-blowing in... in uh, Hmong, we call it Chuan Blong, and she starts singing a song with this leaf. She she starts playing some music that she did when she was a young girl, when the different young men from different villages come and, and tried to court her. And my father took the mango that we had picked up from the roadside and started tossing to my mother. Um, and my aunt and uncle got a ball, so there were these couples out in their 60s just tossing this mango back and forth. And uh, my father started breaking down into tears. And I don't ever remember seeing my dad cry before. So I said, Dad, why are you crying? My father says, son, th- these are ha- happy tears. And he said, I felt like I have died and been reborn again. And you children, you are like the seeds that I brought into my little secret pouch when I came to this country, not knowing what to expect. Here, your mother and I came to this country. We didn't know the language. We didn't know what we were in for. All we knew is that we had 10 kids. We didn't have a sense of hope at the time but we came to this country and we planted our seeds into American soil. And he said, you know what is darn good soil? Because you're done with school now and have jobs and are contributing citizens now are naturalized citizens. My father says, these tears, don't be mistaken, they're happy tears. And my mother started crying too. And my father says, son, I was born a Hmong person, but now I'm an American. And he also added, promise me, son, someday when I die, you put me in my suit and tie American clothes in the coffin, because usually in Hmong, when you pass away, you uh, you're bored, buried in your traditional clothing. And he said, also in my coffin, you give me my my little flag that they gave to me when I got naturalized, and also in my coffin, give me my my U.S. citizenship papers and my uh, my driver's license. I said, why is that, Daddy? He says, because I was born a Hmong person. I saw a lot of harsh things as a young boy, and as a soldier, and and um, and he says, I want to come back as an American. And uh, so, yeah, he says, I want to come back as an American so I can get you to do all these cool things American do, like take uh, like drive convertible cars and things that they take for granted. I said, why your driver's license and your citizenship papers is because when I come back, they're going to want to check my ID, you know, because I'm going to need my ID. They said, oh, well, that's pretty clever. So, um, so yeah, so, so he had a sense of, uh, you know, coming full circle with being an American, and he was just really happy. And that was in January of 2000. Um, September of that year unexpectedly my dad had an aneurysm at the age of 62 and September 3rd to be exact he was pronounced dead at a hospital in Rochester, Minnesota uh, at 6 o'clock in the evening and uh, we had a traditional monk funeral for my father which lasted 3 days and 3 nights um, here in St. Paul during that weekend we had uh, over 1500 people who came to pay their respect to uh, my dad Um, yeah so I told that story to, to remind people that hey uh as my father said, again, America is, is, isn't really about, in his words, um, the color of your skin or the shape of your nose or your eyes. But it's really about where well, you have to contribute to the spirit of America and Americanism.
1: As long as you've got a valid ID. Yeah, as
2: long <laughs> as you've got a valid ID. <laughs> so.
1: Well, unfortunately, we're out of time here. I'd like to thank you all for your stories. Brenda Wang Aoki, Megumi, Tushir Zhang, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Nya
2: Zhong Chi a Happy New Year.
4: Thank you, Steve. Ake mash de omededo ogozaimas. Kung he fa chui.
1: Now, the funny thing about stories is that once you start telling them, it's hard to stop. In fact, long after time was up for our holiday special, the storytelling continued. So we'll leave you with a little bit more from storyteller Brenda Wong Aoki. But I have to warn you, for the rest of this story, you'll have to visit our website, www.loe.org. That's www.loe.org.
0: Well, everybody always says that my parents look like Betty Boop and Elvis. And that's because um, my dad always wears his hair and that kind of, you know, do. My mom has curls and big round eyes. And they met during the Korean War on the Oakland Naval Base. Mom was a secretary and my dad was a sailor. But he got seasick because he was born in Salt Lake City, Utah, and they don't have waves over there. So he was assigned to shore duty. And everybody in their department thought that they ought to get together because they were so cute. They didn't know that Japanese and Chinese people hate each other. My dad said he would look at my mom and think, well, I'm not going to take out some big, loud-mouthed peasant Chinese. And my mom would look at my dad and think, oh, my God, I can't go out with a murdering Japanese rapist. Look what those people did in Nam and Manchuria. But everybody in their department was, as my mom would say, American. And, you know, we used to tell her, hey, Mom, we're American too. But she'd always say, you know what I mean. They were the only Orientals. And so all their American friends kept telling him to go out. So my parents said, okay, we'll just go out and we'll just say, you know, we didn't like each other. And so uh, they decided to go out. But when my dad came to pick up my mom, she was there fortified by four of her homegirls. <laughs> she really called them that because my mom was raised in this orphanage, this Chinese orphanage called the home. And all the girls who lived there called themselves the Home Girls. So mom got in the back seat with one of her homegirls on either side, and two of her other homies got in the front seat and, and watched daddy to make sure that he didn't try any funny business. But my dad was really smart. He took him to church, and then he took him out to lunch. And then my auntie's, my mom's homegirl, said, Oh, he's not so bad. Too bad he's Kai, a Japanese subhuman devil. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And I bet you can guess Brenda's parents do get together. But for the rest of the story, including an explosive ending, go to our website, www.loe.org. There you can also see a picture of the parents of Brenda Wong Aoki. They really do look like Betty Boop and Elvis. And find out more about all of today's storytellers. Our storytelling special today was produced by Mitra Taj and Ingrid Lobeth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Helen Palmer, and Jeff Young. Our interns are Sandra Larson and Jesse Martin. Jeff Turton is our technical director. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwin. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays.
3: Funding for Living on Earth The Rockefeller Foundation and its Campaign for American Workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.